I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Hello, Miriam. It's good to see you too. And uh, so great to, to come together for this episode today with Vilas Dar, which I think is going to be very interesting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. He brings so many different disciplines to the table and uh, has such broad insight in the work that they do at the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. I think it should be a really interesting episode. Absolutely. So there's a lot that I want to ask Vilas. He has a very uh, diverse background and the work of the foundation is truly world leading in terms of uh, moving the ball on AI, data science, uh, the social sector, policy, and more. So let's let's dive right in. Let's do it. Vilas Dar is president and trustee of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation, a 21st century philanthropy advancing artificial intelligence and data solutions to create a thriving, equitable, and sustainable future for all. As a technologist, lawyer, and human rights advocate, Vilas champions a new social compact for the digital age. In January 2021, he helped to launch and now co-chairs with IBM CEO Arvind Krishna the World Economic Forum's Global AI Action Alliance, the world's largest public-private collaboration to ensure the future of responsible and ethical artificial intelligence. Vilas is actively committed to civic service and serves as a trustee of the Christensen Fund, an advisor to MIT Solve, a director of the New England International Donors, and has served as a senior fellow of the Berggruen Institute. Vilas holds a JD from NYU School of Law, a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and dual bachelor's degrees in biomedical engineering and computer science from the University of Illinois. He is currently completing his doctoral dissertation at the University of Birmingham. Vilas's research drives a new vision for how vulnerable and marginalized populations represent themselves and find agency and sovereignty in and through their data. Vilas is a prominent global voice at the intersection of technology and social impact. He is leading a multi-sector shift to put social and ethical values at the heart of decisions about our technological future and building civil society capacity to ensure that technology is ethically designed and used to solve the urgent challenges facing humanity. Vilas, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for that very kind introduction, Mark. I'm delighted to be with you and Miriam today. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to just actually start in that bio itself. Um, you are trained in computer and biomedical sciences uh, and have had a successful career in law, in social entrepreneurship, and now in philanthropy. So you've covered a lot of ground. Uh, how did you first become interested in data and AI? And, and why have you focused your attention on these issues of the many things that you uh, could focus on given your very diverse background? You know, Mark, I had this incredible privilege growing up. I was the child of two people who emigrated to the United States in search of economic opportunity and freedom and all of the wonderful things that the United States stand for. And in that odd quirk of fate, they ended up in rural Midwestern America in the middle of winter as they got off a plane. Um, my family ended up in Champaign, Illinois, the site of the University of Illinois. And at the time, one of uh, the five centers for supercomputing here in the United States. So there I was growing up in what was pretty much semi-rural Illinois with one of the most amazing resources around computing just a few blocks away from my house. And as I grew up, as I started reading science fiction and eventually started to learn about technology, I realized what an incredible privilege it was to grow up around a community of academic researchers and scientists who were really doing cutting edge computing work. 
And of course, I had this incredible interest and enthusiasm in learning more about it. But even as I got to go do things like early summer camps or find grad students that wanted to teach an enthusiastic kid about coding, as I got my first kind of Game Boy and my Nintendo, I balanced that time spent learning about technology with trips back to where my family originally was from. And those experiences changed my entire worldview. It was a place where, for me growing up as an American, I still remember kind of visceral physical discomfort, a lack of plumbing, a lack of electricity, being on streets that just felt like an alien landscape. And as I got to spend time there and really became connected to my family, I realized that there were two very different worlds represented on one planet. One where we had this incredible access to all of the privileges of technology, all of the advantages it offered us. And then another world where they hadn't quite gotten there yet. For me, those two stories together define why I was so fascinated by what we could do with tech. One, because of the incredible opportunity that it presented. But the second underlying it, a question about equity and access of how we can make sure that these tools actually helped everybody in the world live a better life. In terms of living a better life, Vilas, there are so many ways you have trained to create that reality as a lawyer with your master's in public administration, an engineer, a computer scientist. I'm so curious how you decided to put all of this wonderful talent into the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. What does the foundation do and, and what does it mean to be a data and AI philanthropy? It's a really kind question, Miriam. Thank you. Um, you know, I was always fascinated by, as I said, this fundamental question of how do we use technology to make the world a better place? And I tried to do it through a number of different forms. As you mentioned, I really was fascinated by first what technology could do when I studied to be an engineer. And then I was interested in thinking about how we brought technology into decision making at scale. So I pursued law and I had a private sector career working around that. But all of it led to the same point, which was this fundamental idea that tech could promote a love of humanity. Um, often we talk about that term because it is really the translation of philanthropy at large. But more fundamental was this idea that we could bring public resources to support this journey that we're on towards a digital society. So the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation is a philanthropy. We're a foundation that we were funded by an endowment from Patrick McGovern, who was himself a technology visionary, a person who traveled around the world figuring out ways to translate the opportunity of tech into how people were actually using it. And we act to make grants around the world and to sustain social sector practices that bring the tools of data science and AI into the civil sector, that equip nonprofits that are trying to solve really tremendous global challenges with the most powerful tools we have to do that work. And we think a lot about what it means to build not just a digital society that is the best of what technology offers, but really one where we're creating social infrastructure support policy and regulation that allows us to shape how technology creates economic opportunity so it's accessible and inclusive to the global population. It's fantastic and, and such important work and, and really unique. You know, if you look at the global philanthropic landscape, you know, we don't actually see a huge amount of discussion about data, about AI, about social technologies, these kinds of things. Um, we hear a lot about public health, a lot about climate change, a lot about these areas where AI can be helpful in principle, but maybe isn't being fully leveraged yet. I'm curious to hear your view as a practitioner of what is the current state of play in the philanthropic sector with respect to AI and data, and why should philanthropists 
and donors care about data and AI. I think it's important to zoom out and realize that AI and data are already pervasive and ever present. Um, I don't think I need to say any more about this to both of you or to your audience, but we really see it in commercial application in many ways in government policy and action. It's everywhere and it's really becoming more and more intimate. I think that word intimacy is really important for us to understand, right? AI and data are becoming more than products that we use. They're becoming tools that help organizations or decision makers or decision making algorithms really understand who we are and how we make decisions. This is the state of play in the world around us. The question that we face as a data and AI philanthropy is to say, as that track is happening, as these technologies are becoming more pervasive, we recognize that there's an incredible potential to use them for good, but to do so probably isn't just going to happen organically. That we require some intentionality in the application. And so as a philanthropy, we've stepped into that space to ask some fundamental questions. First, who is it that's creating these tools for us? And while I am an immense optimist about the role of the private sector in building these tools, I'm struck by a common realization. It's not that the wrong people are building these tools for us. It's just that we don't have enough voices at the decision-making table around them. Are we really willing to commit as a society to the idea that our entire shared digital future will be shaped by a small number of private sector technology companies? With that question at hand, we've set out to really understand who are all of the civil sector players that are engaging in this conversation on the entire spectrum from who's advocating for greater privacy, sovereignty, and ownership of data, all the way through to who's on the front lines of the technology landscape, building new tools that actually advance the use of these tools in dealing with problems as granular and specific as how do we allow citizens to report on the effects of climate change not at a national level or a state level or a city level, but in their own neighborhoods? How do we build tools that allow citizens to say, you know, every time we have these one in a hundred year storms, I'm noticing that in my neighborhood, there are significant failures of civil infrastructure. How do we use AI and data to sit on top of that kind of reporting to give really great decision-making support to city officials and where they direct immediate short-term dollars? That's just one example of many, and I hope we get to talk about a few more. But fundamental to the construct is the idea that we as a society need to come back to take ownership over decisions about what technologies we're creating and the principles behind them and to build shared applications to make that happen. To make that happen, we need philanthropy and civil society at the table when fundamental decisions get made. Absolutely. So it sounds like both we need to increase who's at the table uh, as well as the tools accessible to us to, to broaden the scale of, of who can participate. And, you know, all of us on this in this discussion today have the opportunity, the privilege to focus on responsible AI from our various lenses um, and, and trying to engage in, in these different medium. And what sounds particularly cool about your job is you get to fund tools to help create responsible AI and AI for good. So I would love to take you up on that offer to discuss more about the kind of work that you're funding and, and some of the innovation we can all be excited about. You know, you're right that we have this incredible privilege of being able to fund some amazing organizations. And I wanna share those stories with you because they inspire me on a regular basis. But at the same time, I wanna acknowledge that those are the stories of organizations that we support and partner with and it's as much their stories to tell as it is ours. So I'll tell you a few of those, but I also want to bookmark and I'll come back to this in a minute. 
that we're trying something new to philanthropy, which is rather than simply being capital allocators or funders or grant makers, we're committed to the idea that we build, need to build new institutions in civil society that actually advance technological frontiers. I'll come back to that in a second, but let me tell you about some of our favorite partners that we work with. I'll start from fundamental human stories, like the idea of indigenous populations that in many ways are finding that their indigenous languages, their ancestral ways of communicating and storytelling are going extinct. That the number of speakers of many of these languages now are dwindling to less than 100 people. That the communities as intent as they are on preserving their stories are finding that they're lacking the capacity to record and continue many of the oral traditions that are behind them. Well, as we began to understand these stories from some of our partners, we also realized that many of the commercial products that use data science of language processing are really focused on, as you would expect, commercial use cases. How do we translate English into French, into Spanish, into Japanese, into Chinese? A team called the International Wakashan AI Alliance stepped forward to say, you know, the tools that are being developed with commercial purpose can be used for more, can be used for a social purpose. And they began to build their own internal algorithms that take these technologies and map them so that we can begin to capture, define, and translate ancestral, extinct, and dying languages from indigenous communities. They built a model for this that's already available, built on open source principles that allow us to capture many of the languages of the Waukeshaan people to make them available to the community as a resource. When we talk about capturing language, often we think a little bit about the grammatical structure and the vocabulary. But as I think back to my own childhood, I realized that the oral traditions that I grew up in, that we all grow up in, capture a lot more than the use of a certain vocabulary or grammar. They capture our identity, our stories, our ownership over our history and our future, our culture. This is a perfect example of a place where a set of researchers and scientists came forward and said, we can build technology that advances a social mission and do it in a way that also advances a technological frontier. It turns out that many of these indigenous languages come from a different polysyllabic family of languages that in advancing the use of these technologies on Waukeshaan languages, they're actually advancing the frontier of where the algorithms were. To take the story and go to a different level, we have also thought a lot about how we apply the tools of data science to big foundational challenges that humanity faces like climate change. And in that space, as we began to work with and understand how climate change advocacy and policy organizations are working in the world, a common challenge began to emerge. The idea that the challenge wasn't actually data availability. It was finding ways to take the many different streams of data and AI-enabled AI kind of analysis that exists out there and build coherent stories that allow you to use these very disparate sources of information. We worked with a number of organizations in the lead organization called the World Resources Institute or WRI, and with them pioneered the creation of a global data lab. Inside of an organization that was actually quite data literate, they began to pull together analytics and disparate data sources, ranging from global geospatial imagery all the way through to self-reported climate impacts from their, their people on the ground to build a single coherent data infrastructure that allowed decision makers at the most senior levels to actually step into and understand what the stories were that were being told by the data. This kind of model, I think, represents a possible transformation for social sector organizations as a whole to say many of these groups that have worked with populations and communities for tens or you know, decades um, have aggregated massive data sets. 
now to create data infrastructure inside of them that let that data first become information and information then through the application of AI become insight is work that needs to start now so that they're ready for it when those AI algorithms are ready to go to actually support them in their work. I'll share with you one more quick story, which isn't so much about the development of AI, but it's something so fundamental to us. Developing a diverse, ethically grounded workforce that's capable of building AI in the future. Here, we partner with an organization called the Hidden Genius Project based out of Oakland, California, that works with at-risk and vulnerable young black males to bring them into a basic digital literacy and then very quickly accelerate them into a high level of competence around data science and AI. It's an incredible experience to meet with and to speak with some of the students who have gone through their programs who talk about how fundamental this capacity building and tech skills training has had an effect on their identities, their capacities to engage with economic opportunity, the kinds of jobs and leadership positions they've began to found in the field, but at the same time, how it's sustained and developed a new form of mentorship and community inside of their families, their environments, their cities. These are a handful of examples I've shared with you of partners that we are so privileged to be able to fund because they are able to advance this work I do want to quickly come back to, if you don't mind, this fundamental question also of how we as an institution are actually stepping into the technical challenge. Um, as we've spoken with nonprofit organizations and institutions advancing this work, again, one of the needs we've heard is we know that there's an exciting opportunity in AI, but we're not really sure where to start. In order to address and serve that, we've developed a program inside of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation called Data and Society. And by bringing together data scientists and data engineers who work in-house with us as a part of our philanthropic activity and who then partner with nonprofits in a variety of ways, we're helping organizations work to a space of data maturity, eventually AI maturity. So more on that if you're interested and we can talk about that a little bit more. We are we are very interested and, and, and interested really in all of these examples. In fact, I, I wish we could have an episode about each of them and we may take you up on your um, your point earlier saying that actually some of the people who could speak best to these projects are the people who run them. We would love to talk to some of those people because these are just incredible kind of lighthouse projects that I think really can show us the way, whether it's at the local level in Oakland uh, or amongst uh, uh, an indigenous group whose language is being lost or at the macro level of global climate change um, and, and kind of global transformation. So Thank you for sharing those. Really exciting. I want to stay at this this ecosystem level. You know, I think as that answer showed, you have a really unique and expansive view of the ecosystem. Uh, you are supporting a lot of grant partners. You're hearing and seeing about a lot of things that are going on. I'm curious what your view is at that ecosystem level of of what are we what are we not talking about enough collectively in the AI conversation. And, and is there anything that we're talking about too much as we have this you know, growing uh, and robust societal discussion about AI and our AI future? So one of the observations that we have on an ongoing basis is that there are a lot of actors engaged with a conversation about AI and social good. And I think we all come to that from our own positionality and perspectives based on the sector we come from. As I talk with my colleagues and senior leaders in the private sector around tech, we're able to have incredibly enthusiastic conversations about the opportunities that tech provides in the creation of new products and new services in the way it can transform particularly consumer behavior. 
When I speak with my colleagues at very senior levels of government, those conversations often have a different tenor. They're often questions grounded in terms that I care deeply about around who's most vulnerable. How are these technologies propagating or creating harms? What kind of policy or regulatory environment should we put in place to protect, to enable, to change? And when I speak with colleagues in the social sector, as I've discussed earlier, there's both a high level of excitement, but really a question, well, how does this technology transform the way that I might operate in delivering last mile medical care to a village in rural Africa? How does it transform how we think about K through 12 education in some of the most poorly resourced schools in America? The challenge, Mark, as I see it, is not so much that there's a lack of interest in these topics, but that we haven't yet established a common language, a common vernacular, where we can bring together those technology product designers with those social change makers and those government regulators to say, let's actually set some common goals and targets. Let's figure out where our different perspectives create additionality and create real value in developing new tools and technologies. I'm beginning to see this happening. It's why I'm so excited for some of the work I get to do with the World Economic Forum around the Global AI Action Alliance to actually bring together multiple sectors in a single conversation to say, let's establish some common principles about what we believe in, where our values are, what we're grounded in by the intention of creating these technologies. And then let's go from that values-led place of heart to that cerebral place of building products that actually sustain those outcomes. One of the great possibilities here is to learn from the very best of technology design and the very best of social change and say, let's put those two elements together in the construct of building new technologies. I think that's where the excitement for me lasts. You also asked, what do we talk about too much? And I want to acknowledge that many of the public conversations we're having about these topics when AI enters the mainstream are still grounded in, I don't want to say fear, but let's call it an uncertainty, a suspicion, maybe a Hollywood-induced idea that technologies run amok might transform our world in ways that we're just not comfortable with. I think it's really important that we have those conversations, but it's also important to acknowledge that Technology by itself probably isn't going to transform too much. The technology really becomes a tool to propagate, magnify, to amplify human tendencies and human intentions. And so when somebody asks me, aren't you scared of robots taking over the world? I often say no, because I'm actually fully confident in the resiliency of the human spirit, in the idea that when decision makers have choices to make, they're going to make the ones that actually make the world better. That Together, we can actually step forward and say, we're going to shape this future. It's never going to be one that robots shape for us. Now, that may sound hopelessly optimistic, and I'm very happy to carry that moniker. Um, but at the same time, that optimism is balanced by a pragmatism that says, if that's the intention that we want to get to, we should probably be doing some work now to build some institutions and some social sector connections that make sure that when we have to make those decisions, Decision makers are informed not just by what the technology can do, but the humanist tendencies, the history, the philosophy, the ethics, and the morality by which they should make them. And that's work that we have to do all together.
Yes, I would love to follow up on that point. I think, again, we all share your optimism about what AI can do to create more inclusivity and that uh, in general, we can get to that, uh, that, that more inclusive, um, innovative, exciting vision of, of the AI future that we're building towards. Um, but like you said, there are steps that we should be taking to ensure that we're heading in that direction. And uh, at Equal AI, we like to support businesses uh, to help them with a badge program and so forth to understand what responsible governance could and should look like. Uh, we work with lawyers to try and help them uh, understand what some of the risks are that they should be mitigating. And the third row uh, lane is something that I know of interest to you. You mentioned some of the policymakers that you work with, and it seems that there is an essential role for government in this equation in establishing the guardrails, in ensuring the equity and equality um, that we want to ensure that business is on track to uh, create with the AI that they're innovating and bringing forth into the world. So what are some of the uh, policy maker recommendations you would have when and if you do advise policymakers where you think that these are the most important steps that they should be taking to ensure that our AI future is one that is positive, inclusive, and innovative as well. You mentioned three sort of populations there that we care about deeply, and I'll, I'll maybe talk about each one of them in turn, maybe starting with your specific question. So with the policy regulators that we now work with quite closely and advise both here in the United States and all around the world, we're experiencing that there are a few fundamental questions. The first is what should our policy be on AI? And that's quite a broad question, right? But we find a uniformity of principles that really govern great policy and AI. The first is a set of common commitments around the idea that whatever we do with our AI policy, what we're putting at the center of it is a combination of the interests of our citizens, our individuals, our people, an ability to build economic empowerment that creates new jobs and new spaces for people to participate in economic growth. And third, and I want to acknowledge this, still a very deep line around national competitiveness around AI. How do we build a certain capacity or internal competence that lets us be better than? And I think those are all valid and very important pieces. On each of those, we provide a civil sector voice in supporting a more robust kind of conception of each of those issues, particularly at the individual level, making sure that we're both protecting for individual vulnerability or group vulnerability, and also making sure that there are pathways to education and employment. But once we step out of AI policy in general, I do want to make an observation that many of our conversations with both policy regulators and technologists express the same sentiment. Public conversations about regulating AI have become grounded in the idea that technologists or technology companies are pushing the frontier of what technology does forward and regulators are standing at guard to push them back. I think it's a fundamental misconception. As much amount of type as antitrust or regulatory interventions are getting, we're missing a more fundamental point that government policy is incredibly intrinsic to what we do with our technology going forward that it's no longer going to be that technology companies are the sole ones who are creating a vision of what's possible. So we think a lot about how do we work with government um, policymakers to do things like fund fundamental research and development in these tools in ways that are held outside of proprietary technology company hands. How do we make sure that we're investing in um, 
educational and workforce development uh, tools across kind of the, the, the country here in the US across different geographies to make sure that we're creating pathways to employment. How do we make sure that we're integrating existing social institutions? For example, our national healthcare system, particularly with groups like the VA that are under direct government mandate to actually be able to use these tools and push them forward. And how do we restructure the conversation from government as a reactant to one who is actually proposing a positive vision of what's possible with these technologies? You know, I published um, a few months ago an op-ed that said, how do we restore American competitiveness around AI? And even as I wrote it, I think the arguments that I wrote in that article, you know, still hold true that we need to bring back our kind of leadership around the globe on both the technology and the policy elements. But if you ask me today, I'd say the primary goal is less around restoring our competitiveness and much more about restoring our beacon of hope, our willingness to talk about a future that's defined together as a society by technology and AI, and making sure that we make that a part of every conversation we have. Um, I wanna quickly go back. You mentioned a little bit about technology companies, and I do wanna acknowledge that even though, even in this conversation, I've maybe painted technology companies with a broad brush, I recognize, I think we all do, that technology companies are made up of technologists. And where technology companies sometimes have agendas or outcomes that are driven by commercial and for-profit interests, the people that make these institutions up are people who love the idea of what technology can create for humanity at large. That behind these kind of large entities are individuals and people who care about the world we live in. And so one of the things I think a lot about is before painting too broadly the private sector with too broad of a brush, how are we creating opportunities for individual technologists to step out of their kind of corporate roles and into the roles of being mentors and educators, of being starters of public conversations around issues related to AI, of being leaders in their communities and helping build a broad-based digital literacy? I think that's also something that both philanthropy and government can support in creating new opportunities for. I look back to models like citizen volunteering corps or an incredible little vignette I heard recently about how in community centers across Singapore, immediately prior to the pandemic, groups of elderly citizens would gather together and in those same spaces would be tables of youth who would come just to hang out. And inevitably what would happen is the exchange of some basic, how do I use my phone to do this? Or how do I use my phone to do that? Over time, building a multi-generational digital literacy, but also a more closely connected society. And so I think we need to be creative in thinking about where all those paths of intersection are. I love that. I think that, that it is true and unfortunate that the conversation often is reduced to a uh, kind of zero-sum um, game or, or competition where the interests of uh, technology companies and the interests of society and, 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 and government gets caught up in the middle, uh, where they're all kind of opposed. And, 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 and I think that I love these examples of these win-wins where actually surely technology companies and their employees can be hugely helpful. Uh, they know how to use technology. They, uh, I think, mostly really care about making the world a better place. They're looking for opportunities to do it. So I love this framing, this kind of positive sum. So Vilas, thank you so much. This has been a really great discussion. We'd like to end our, our, our discussions with a question that we ask all of our guests, uh, which is uh, oriented around a rose, a thorn, and a bud. So what we mean by that is um, what AI developments, either in terms of technology or policy, are you most happy about that you're seeing out there? You know, that's the rose. What's really great? It's happening right now. 
The thorn is what are you less happy about that uh, is, 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 is making you fearful. And the bud is what's coming down the pipeline. You know, what are you seeing glimmers of uh, that, you know, maybe a year, two, three ahead that could be really exciting, could be really a game changer. I love that construct. Um, so I'll tell you the rose for me around AI and data actually has nothing to do with technology. The rose, the hope for me is around curiosity, is around our human connection to the idea that when we see these things that are happening around us, people really want to know more about them. And I'm experiencing, even over the last few years, the number of private and public conversations where people step in and say, you know, I've heard about AI. I've seen the Hollywood movies that show me all of the negative sides of it. But let's have a conversation about what it is. Tell me how it can be useful in my life. You know, in the early part of our conversation, I shared with you some of my visits back to India, where my family um, was at the time. And I think back to what was one of the most powerful experiences in my life. I would take whatever the new toy, the new piece of technology was, and I'd sit with my grandfather, who in India had only completed a third year, uh, third grade uh, education. And I would sit with him and he would be so incredibly patient with me as with youthful enthusiasm, I tried to show him every bell and whistle. I'd show him the game that I had coded in QBasic or whatever else. And he'd give me about five minutes and he'd ask a few questions and he really was eager. And then he would ask one fundamental question. He'd say, you know, this is really interesting. Can you tell me how this helps the people in this community? How does it help the farmer in the fields, the kid who doesn't yet have access to schooling? How does it help the people in this community? I'm the rose for me is that that conversation is getting started and we're beginning to ask over and over again, how can data and AI help our communities? I think the next thing you asked for was a thorn. Um, and I have to tell you, I'm really fearful. I have a commitment and conviction that we as a society will do the right thing. But I do fear a society where we don't advance that curiosity, where we don't lift it up, where we don't acknowledge it, where we don't say, this is a path and a conversation that we have to have. I'm struck by how resonant some of the failures around AI have been and how little time and space and attention we give to the incredible successes of these tools. From everything from delivering better governmental insights on how to allocate COVID-19 vaccines, right? Powered by AI that created better resource allocation across the globe to take an immediate action. Um, immediate um, intervention, to learning assistants that are helping kids in under-resourced areas better engage with subject matter. Um, the greatest fear I have is that we miss the potential good that could come from the revolution that is inevitably happening for us around digital technology. And I think the last thing you asked for was the bud. Where is the work happening? And here you speak directly to my passion, right? Because I think we all do this work together. But the work for me is not just advancing how people use these tools, not just in helping nonprofits bring the very best of AI and data science to tremendous challenges that we're all facing together, but in setting the intention that we will build a society that's not driven by ethical AI but an ethical society that's supported and driven by ethical technology. I think that's where the work is happening. That's what I'm really excited by, is the intersection of civil sector voices stepping forward, becoming digitally literate, and saying together, we now have yet another opportunity to share, to shape our shared future. 
it's time for us to do this together. Well, now I am I am feeling inspired by that myself. So thank you for sharing that with us, Vilas. Um, and thanks for being with us today. It's been such a pleasure to have you. You've given us uh, so much food for thought, uh, really just painted a really exciting and positive picture of where all of this can go. And I think um, have given us a lot of examples of specific things that are being done right here and right now that can, that can help us um, be inspired to, to do even more. So thank you for being with us. We've, we've really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's been a delight and a pleasure. Thank you both so much. Well, Mark, another great episode. What were some of the main takeaways from Velas that resonated with you? Well, I agree that it was a great episode. I am leaving that discussion very inspired and just um, really excited about both the work of the foundation, but also the uh, issues and the, the directions that, that Vilas pointed us to as being important, exciting, um, and, and something that we should have our eye on. So a couple of specific examples. I loved the um, uh, work that he told us about that the foundation is funding around uh, preservation of indigenous language and stories. Uh, this is something that you don't hear talked about every day and certainly not in the AI conversation, but there are so many use cases like that where AI can really be very helpful and where there are already tools out there that can be used for a purpose like that, but the dots just aren't being connected. So I love those stories and it really underscored to me that there is this very important role for philanthropy in doing that dot connecting, in thinking about how can we you know, ensure that some of these challenges that the market alone won't solve, that government alone won't solve, can be addressed. What about you, Miriam? What jumped out on your side? Well, I, I love that um, it's very empowering to hear him talk. I think he really has a role for each of us in ensuring that AI is used for good. He has a role for government, uh, ensuring that that our policies are supporting innovation and that, that we are being inclusive, both in our K through 12 education, as well as through upskilling uh, those who could participate in different ways in the AI future. Uh, like you said, empowering indigenous people by using AI to support those communities, uh, as well as broadening the reach of, of who is touched in, by AI uh, in a way that benefits their communities. And also the way he thinks about organizations as a group of people. Uh, I like that he's reminding us that tech companies are filled with people and, and how do we best engage them and, and bring out the full scope of who they are and how they can contribute to the AI future. I thought that was really inspiring too. And I think that um, it, it, it just points towards um, this this sort of possible future that is is actually within reach, where we can not have these old divisions and dichotomies between companies and governments and, and, and so on, but actually think about how can we take the best from the public sector, take the best from the private sector, and take the best from individuals. There's no reason why a worker in a tech company couldn't be using their skills for a volunteer project outside of the company, why companies themselves couldn't be doing more. And so to me, that um, was an important takeaway. Uh, Vilas said that you know we do need new institutions, we need new constructs, we need new configurations of all of these different actors, and then we also need a common language and a common vernacular so that we can talk to one another across all of these divides and we can find common purpose and we can make common cause and we can act together and do more together than we would do 
separately. So very inspiring to me. And um, I'm just excited to hear more about these projects that he mentioned and uh, perhaps bring some of their leadership onto the show in the future. Agreed. That would be really, really fun and interesting. So another great episode and I'll look forward to our next one. Yeah, thanks so much, Miriam. See you soon. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 